Hi, I'm Jennifer Wilde, and you're listening to Sober Exposure. If it's about recovery, we're going to cover it. It's like one big therapy session, but it's free. So thanks for joining our dysfunctional family as we uncover recovery with Sober Exposure. Let's go. guys sober exposure with me jennifer wild oh my god reverting back to like the 20 year old girl and me with the short skirt and the big hair and the makeup wait a minute i still wear the makeup right. and uh you know actually i gotta say i think i look better now than i did back then I, you do I, I saw you you're absolutely stunning uh, my boobs are a lot bigger now too but that's that's uh you know that, that, that was thanks to um dr deluca thank you so oh, much doc it. So, so, you know, we've got, we've got a really special edition because we've got, we got somebody really special. We have Jimmy. Now, how did I even get Jimmy D on the show? Jimmy, how did I even get you? I mean, I I thought maybe it was because you remembered me when um, I met you backstage at the Mirage in Minneapolis. And I I think I, I slept with somebody in the band. I know. Yeah. I, I, I think it was the, uh, the, uh, the bass player, um, (laughs) I, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, they always say it's never the drummer. <laughs> right. Of course. It's never the drummer. No one wants a drummer. <laughs> Sorry. Let me tell you, um, I got to say, I loved you guys back in the day. I did. I was never like a Bon Jovi girl. I wasn't. I was like faster pussycat, bully, bullet boys. Mm. I was always sort of like the, the underground 80s metal chick, Sunset Strip, even though I was from Cleveland, Ohio. Like I I went to LA. I was always going on the Sunset Strip, always going to the clubs. And you guys just played um, recently. Didn't you guys just play the whiskey, like a little reunion? Well, not just. It was uh, a year ago this past December. Well, that's Uh, just. I mean, when we're talking about the 80s, that's just. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of that, yes, from the beginning of time until now. Yes, it just (laughs) happened a few minutes ago. But uh, yeah, that was our reunion show, which is kind of, unfortunately, it was kind of forced. But uh, um, yeah, the band is finally back together after 28 years. We have finally reunited all original members um, and we're really excited. Are we, are we really that old? Are you are you freaking kidding me? Well, you know, look, uh, listen, I, I now look around at people at my age group and realize that it's our it's our obligation and it's a responsibility to keep rocking balls very hard to remind other people that, you know what, you don't have to fucking stop and get old. You can fucking keep doing this shit and do it well and look good doing it. And that's kind of my uh, what I want to continue doing with my life. And you guys did because I was watching um, I was watching it on YouTube and I got to say, Friggin', first of all, you guys packed the house. It was packed. Hmm. And the it, you guys sounded amazing. You were tight as hell. It was unbelievable. And I was so pissed that I wasn't there. And I, I'm so psyched that you guys are going back on tour. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And I also want to say, how the hell, who is picking these cover songs? Like, what the fuck? Well, we did do back in the day that there were cover songs that people wouldn't even think about touching. We did a Tom Waits song, which is uh, the song Hang On St. Christopher. Yeah. And that, that was something that was completely, you know, I mean, even left of left field. You know, guys, you know, guys in Mr. Bungle would have liked that song and tracked that song. Guys in Slipknot would have liked that song. Uh, right. But Bullet Boys was, was definitely one of those bands that could uh, reach over into that area of their pocket and go, oh, you know what? We got this. You 
you know, but we also did the rock and roll straight blues uh, uh, of Talk to Your Daughter, Robin Ford. You know, we would do stuff like that. And th- that's a cover track. And of course, the one that we had a lot of success with was the OJs For the Love of Money. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is you guys did that so right. I got to tell you, we were working out this morning to that. Nice. Well, I'll tell you. One of the greatest compliments, I mean, I've, I've had some really beautiful compliments in my life that I, I, I hold near and dear, but Lenny Kravitz walked up to me one night. We were all at, at, a, at a concrete uh, foundation. Uh, it's an event they, they had out of here in L.A. And he walked, he beelined because we were standing there and I was, I'm like, holy shit, fucking here comes Lenny Kravitz. And he <laughs> walks up and he goes, hey, man, how's it going? I go, hey, dude, what's up? And I'm a, I, I'm a huge fan. And he goes, dude, he goes, I just want to tell you that the, the, the cover you guys did of the OJ's track is possibly one of the most most in, uh, um, uh, innovative covers of that a band can do for a, a song of that nature because that that song is so it's it's an iconic track in the funk community and he goes and you guys were able to kind of really make it your own and make it rock and you never lost any of the integrity of the song and I was like holy shit Lenny Kravitz he goes dude he goes this is, you guys are one of my favorite bands so I, I always thought that you know that's one of, again the gifts that Bullet Boys had is we could go into the funk in the R&B area and, and make it uh, make it ours. So th- that was something I was really proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this question. And I, I'm getting, you know, this is a recovery show and I'm getting all Jennifer Wilde on air radio personality on you here. But like, do you get sort of insulted at the term hairband? Does that bother you? Because I mean, no, it's confusing because it, okay. it implies that, that the rest of the uh, bands and and in the world never had hair. <laughs> I don't understand. Does that mean Led Zeppelin didn't have hair? And the Beatles right. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, of course I, I just, but I mean, I know what, what, what they're, they're breaking it down to the, to the lowest common denominator because, and it's true for the most part that there, there came a time that in our genre, that, that the look of a band was as important or more important than the music itself. And that's where, you know, and, and I, and I got booed for this when I said this a couple of times, but that's where I believe that our genre failed is we stopped really looking to finding the great fucking rock bands. Cause we have them, you know, bands like Tesla, you know, uh, living color. There were great bands that, that were really kind of breaking ground, you know, um, and then, uh, uh, you know, then it just kind of, it, it came down to this, you know, does, is the lead singer blonde? Do they have right. a ballot? You know, yeah. uh, uh, th- make them look like this band. And then that was really it. And I think that's why we lost a lot of respect in our community. I mean, fucking Motley Crue's first two or three records are absolutely amazing. You know, the, it was still about the music. You know, the first Rat records were about the music. You know, the image was still, it was second or third of importance. But at some point in the mid 80s, you know, guys at labels and shit, they were all like, you know what? Just make sure they look like Molly Crew or Warrant and fucking they're out the door and let's package it. Let's let's put it on a lunchbox and let's get it out. And, and again, that's where I think we failed as far as an industry goes. We didn't nurture the bands to really become, you know, good songwriters and, and, and great storytellers. So th- I think that's where we really kind of fucked up. It became all image. But, you know, when you think about it, that sort of happens to every genre of music because Absolutely. in the 90s, Absolutely. you know, I mean, come on, Nirvana came out. They were better than, you know, they they, they, they just hit the scene right. larger than life. And right. I was I was a product of the hair bands in the 80s. And I that was my thing. 
I was sort of ready for a change, but I mean, I, I, Nirvana came out and I was like, what the hell is this? Holy shit. I did. I fell in love with Nirvana. I was ready for it. They changed our lives. I mean, I became, you know, I love them and you're right because you know what? I think Kurt even said, or somebody said it in one of those bands, if it was Pearl Jam or Soundgarden, they go, we knew that it was kind of, it was coming to an end when JC Penney's had a grunge look. And a, and a grunge look. That was like, that's it. You're done. You're fucking done. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. What's next? <laughs> Yeah, right. No, seriously. So we were talking a little bit um, off. What do you say in a podcast? You don't say off air. See, it's just still the radio DJ and me. But before we um, started talking to the audience, we were talking, you were saying about how back in the day. So you go you go backstage to uh, uh, backstage at a concert now. And I feel like I'm like at a bank. It's like so freaking boring. Like as a sober woman now, I'm sort of relieved because I'm not tempted. But like back in our day, Mm -hmm. you were telling me that your kids were saying, tell me that story again. So what happened was we had, uh, I have a 28 year old -old son now, but about 10 years ago, you know, uh, he's a musician as well. Actually, he's very, very brilliant and he's a great songwriter and he's doing his own thing, which is, I'm I'm a huge fan of his. But uh, about 10 years ago, we were all sitting here and and a handful of uh, his friends or the guys in his band, they came out to me and they go, so, so Jimmy, the videos that we see from the eighties, is that stuff pretty accurate? And I go, no. No. And they go, oh, so it, it wasn't like that? And I go, no. I go, that those were real, those are PG. Those are tame. What we <laughs> experienced back in the 80s. And, you know, and I'll tell you, because all, I mean, we were trying to be, and it's funny because I was trying to be like, like, you know, Motley Crue and Motley Crue was trying to be like Van Halen and Van Halen was trying to be like Led Zeppelin. So it was literally like, like the Kings of, of all of that destruction and partying and, and, and sex with every living thing, you know, it just kind of trickled down. And then by the time we got to us, we were just trying to keep up with those guys. So the partying, and then we talked about, but the drugs and, and, and the sex and all the stuff that goes with it, we were knee deep in that stuff. And of course, thank God, we always say this, thank God there was no phones back then because people oh would be God. in jail right now for some of the shit that we did back then. I mean, it was completely out of control. And, uh, you know, but again, like we talked about, I'm glad we made it out of it. I'm glad to be clean and sober now, but, uh, back then, oh yeah, things were hair. It was crazy. I gotta just, I gotta tell you my, I don't know if I should break his anonymity like this. <laughs> I gotta tell you my Brett Michaels story. I gotta tell it. I mean, oh, he, because he's a, he's America's sweetheart, Brett Michaels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but back in the day in Minneapolis, there was a very very young Jen Wild way before I was on the air, and it was the Super Bowl was playing in Minneapolis, and there was this rock club called the Mirage, and there was this amazing local band called Gemini, and I love Gemini. I was a Gemini groupie man. I was there, and I was like half naked watching Gemini, and yeah. some big bodyguard came up to me and he said. Bobby Dahl is here and he wants to spend the night with you. And for those of you that don't know, Bobby Dahl plays in the band Poison. Yes. And I'm like, Bobby, what? I'm like, oh, and I was like half, half in the bag by then already. I didn't have any cocaine to straighten up, so I couldn't, you know, I was so drunk. And so Bobby pulls me in the back and the Mirage happened to be in a horrible area. It was mm. like in the ghetto, but it was a rock club. So it was all rockers. And I'm in the limo with Bobby Dahl and Bobby was kind of cool. He was a gentleman. I mean, I was, I was, I was hammered, but he right. was a gentleman. I know he, he was, he was, he was about to probably try and, you know, you know, you know, I'm trying yeah. to be classy about the story, but there was nothing classy about this story. But, um, <laughs> Bobby, I'm going to keep his anonymity, but you know, he's had his struggles as well, but so we're, we're partaking. And then 
friggin', okay, so I take my shoes off. I basically take my pants off. Mm. I have no shoes, no pants. My, my purse is on the other side of the limo. Okay. So I'm like half naked, no shoes, Minneapolis, Super Bowl. So just, <laughs> just think about how freezing cold it is. My jacket's oh, yeah. off. Okay. And Brett comes in the limo and he's like, Bobby, what did I tell you? We're, we're not picking up any chicks tonight. We're, we got them at the hotel. What the fuck? He opens the door, pull, pull, just throws me out of the limo and they drive off. And it's like by that time, like three in the morning, the oh. bar's closed. I'm in the ghetto. No shoes, no purse, no oh jacket. That oh is God. epic. How did you get home? <laughs> what what happened? How did you get home? Um, there was a bowling alley that was open 24 hours. And I stumbled in there and cried. No. And I lived like an hour away. And um, these these two gentlemen that didn't live far from the Mirage, they they drove me home. Oh, that's so sweet of them. They drove me home. Beautiful mm-hmm. men. Very nice. So that's yeah. my Brett Michael story. Anyway, but, so but are you friends with Brett? You. you and I both know that. But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Can you can, can can you are you friends with Brett? I I actually you know what I haven't seen him in a minute, but we I'll tell you what's funny about you know how life does what it does. Uh, when I was probably 17, 18 years old, I was dating a, a girl out in Hollywood and I, and she had a sister that they lived on Hollywood. And that's when I first met Brett is that he was dating the other sister. So I would go to the, uh, the girl's house, their apartment, and Brett would be there and he was, you know, tell me about his band Poison. And they had just came out there Um and, and moved out to LA and uh, he would hand me flyers and I'd hand him my band flyers. And we became friends during that time period. So once they made it and they became successful and bullet boys became successful, I remember a couple of times and I'm Bobby too, you know, I would see them and I'm, you know, and I still, up until recently, I was still even uh, uh, close with uh, Ricky rocket. I mean, when we talk and text and stuff, but you know, uh, seeing those guys on the road for the first time and they would look over and they go, fuck dude, can you believe it? You know, we were all sitting there on the sunset strip, you know, trying to make shit happen. And here we are. I mean, Poison would be headlined, of course, but we'd be playing, you know, some huge festival in, you know, in the Midwest and, you know, a bowl of Poison on the bill, Poison's on the bill. Monsters of Rock Tour, right? Uh, back then it was the World Series of Rock is what it was, I believe. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, I remember just thinking like, yeah, like it's amazing that we, we experienced the, this similar journey, you know, from, you know, wanting to be the next Motley or the next Rat or the next Van Halen and being able to get up there and do uh, do our best and have a good time doing it. So, yeah, it, it was it was a great time. Uh, yeah. And you you must have I mean, dude, you must have had such a life because I, I remember watching you on the Headbangers Ball. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We hosted it a handful of times. I remember. I know. I was sitting there in my in my parents uh, in my bedroom at my parents' house with my with my posters mm. and you know my my Eddie Van Halen posters, my Zeppelin posters. I know you're a big Zeppelin fan. I know that. Yeah, Me too. Absolutely. Man, hell Zeppelin. So, um, and and watching you there. So. What was amazing about that is I grew up in Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles. So, you know, it was for driving for us. It was literally 20 minute drive for us, you know, to get from Boyle Heights to, to North Hollywood. And uh, and we got to see those bands. We got to see Motley Crue when they were still just a local band. We saw Rat when they were still a local band. You know, uh, we were it was the interim between Ke- uh, uh, Kevin Dubrow. Uh, I'm sorry, Quiet Riot. When Randy had left to go join Ozzy, uh, Kevin had started his own band called 
called Dubrow. And the drummer of that band was Frankie Benali. So we saw local bands who ended up really becoming the guys who changed the entire landscape for rock and roll music. And it showed me that, dude, that we saw that guy on a Tuesday night at fucking, you know, at the Whiskey or Tuesday night or Thursday night at Gazari's or, you know, Madame Wong's West. And we saw these guys and now they're on MTV. Now they're touring with, you know, the Van Halens and the Aussies and the Sabbaths and so on. So it really kind of it was such a, an amazing thing to go, OK, so I can do it then. Because I saw them on Tuesday night doing that, and now here they are next summer, you know, on tour. So that means it's possible for us to actually achieve this goal, and uh, and that I think really honestly is why people go come to Los Angeles because during that time period, at least, that you know it was like oh, so that's where it happens. That's where it it can happen if you have you know the right members and the right music and a a, a decent look. So we were really blessed that we got to follow in 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 the uh, after some of those guys because they they were some of the greatest rock bands out there. Oh yeah. Everybody had a dream, man. I, I was from uh, Cleveland and any chance I got, I was on a plane going to Los Angeles because that was my scene. I mean, I, I I talked to some people that like the New York scene. They like the punk scene. That was not for me. I liked, I liked the pretty boys. I liked the pretty boys and I liked the rock and roll. That was me. I was full into punk before I joined bullet boys. I was into punk and into hip hop. I mean, to like, I mean, I was full on like, like the hair metal scene really. I, I mean, I liked it, but it wasn't what I was shooting for. I was totally into a different thing. And that's, what's funny. Before I joined bullet boys, I was in a band that we were kind of going to be kind of like a rage against the machine, but at least five, six years before that, uh, uh, that rage even came out. So that was where I was heading. And then of course, you know, I had known the singer Mark from bullet boys, you know, for years. Cause he gave my brother, guitar lessons when when my brother was younger and really um, is that how you met really yeah well uh what happened was we're uh, like i said we lived in boyle heights we moved to a town called montebello and mark had lived in montebello and um and we we knew who he was because he was the most famous guy in, in in the adjacent cities, and uh, and so we the, the new school we went to or that my brother did at least because I dropped out like in the eighth ninth grade, but um, my brother went to school with Mark's sister, and that's how you know she told oh yeah Mark Turin's my my brother I'm like oh my god and my brother's like can I get lessons so Mark would come to our house and give my brother lessons and uh, and a couple times he saw us rehearse and he walked over to me I think I was probably sixteen years old and he walked over and he goes Jimmy he goes you are an amazing drummer. And he goes, you're too young right now. He goes, but when you're 18, he goes, I'm going to come back and get you. And literally when I was 19, uh, uh, Bola Boys formed and they had a, 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 another drummer and they kicked him out. The guy wasn't doing the job. He wasn't cutting the mustard. They had, they had been working with a couple of people, but they were like, dude, you know, this guy's not working. So they needed a drummer. And then I came in and that's when we got signed to Ted with uh, Warner Brothers with uh, uh, Ted Templeman, who did all the Van Halen stuff. And basically half the staff that did all the Van Halen stuff from Warner Brothers was our, was our team. So it was just, it was such an amazing, like I said, like, you know, Van Halen's one of my all-time favorite bands. And yeah. then to know that I'm looking, you know, into the, 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 the the, the the studio into the control booth and there's half the crew that did Van Halen's records you know and then here I am 19 years old fucking about to click off to like the, the, the first song for the you know on the Bull Boys record first Bull Boys record it was just so surreal I mean people talk about this term surreal that was 
fucking surreal. Yeah, so, that's great. That's Pat Templeman, who not only that, but he did Montrose, she did Aerosmith, he did Cheap Trick. I mean, this is like the guy. And here I am, 19 years old, you know, starting to uh, begin my, my musical career with him. It was just absolutely mind-boggling a couple times. But again, I'm just so blessed that I got to have that and uh, and so much more. Now, to, to transition to um, the addiction side, yep. I mean, what I want to do is transition into the Van Halen story about how my dad <laughs> pulled me out of the Van Halen tour bus when I was 16 and then grounded me and, and told Van Halen that he was going to sue all their fucking asses off. But that's <laughs> there. I just told the story. It's great. And then I actually interned for Warner Brothers like three years later. And oh, uh, nice. yeah, nice. I, I, I yeah. And and they they were they they recognized me and they asked yeah, me. <laughs> so wait did you ever get to meet uh did you ever get to meet van, the band van halen uh alex uh we became good friends with them oh at, good at for you good yeah good. yeah uh, unfortunately i have an eddie van halen story that is so absolutely epic that we'll save for another time no we're not <laughs> saving it for another time are you kidding me we're talking about it right now no no you just said we're transitioning to the, the no right. no no not when you got an eddie van halen story uh-uh come on <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so what happened was we had become good friends. And actually, the bass player, Lonnie, had married uh, Valerie Bertinelli's best friend. So Lonnie was hanging out with Ed a lot. But I got to hang around with Ed a couple of times in the studio because I would go down to, to pick up uh, demos for Bullet Boys. And they were in the same studio. And he'd come out and get Jimmy, what's up? And hugs and kisses and stuff. So we kind of got a little close. So... Now, fast forward to the, the the fuck record just gets released and they're on tour. They're playing the forum. And I call, you know, I, I do my whole trip and I call because my, my brother and my father's birthday are in May around three days apart. And their gig happens to be the Van Halen show is in that window. So I'm like, oh, I'm taking my brother and my father. We're going to go. I'm going to celebrate their birthday. And so we start drinking at dinner at about six o'clock. And by the time I get to Van Halen and the whole, you know, after the show and stuff, I mean, I am completely sauced. And uh, so I say to the guys, I go, for your birthday, you guys, for your birthday, I'm going to get you guys to get pictures with Edward Van Halen. They're like, oh, my God, that's great. So I start to walk into the dressing room where Edward is, and then he beelines and he gets out and he kind of almost goes as far away as he can, like against the wall to walk down the hallway of the forum and the dressing room area. And I'm going, Ed, Ed, and I'm starting to call him. And he's like just running from me always. I'm like, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> so I follow him and I go, I'll be right back to my family. I'll be right back. And then I follow him and then he goes into a dressing room and then I open the dressing room door. And I walk in and he's in the back right there. And I go, hey, Ed, I go, what the fuck, dude? I go, I'm calling you. And he lunges at me and starts to like, like choke me at my neck with one hand. And I, like I said, I grew up in East LA. I mean, a part, a part of my growing up is, is violence. It's like something that I, at the time, I, it's as a, more of a comfortable than uncomfortable. So I go into like, just like this blind, like, this is what I do. And I start choking Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> and, and because it's just it, it's a it's a normal response for me and then at that point i feel a very large arm around my neck pulling me back and i kind of look up and i see his it's ed's personal bodyguard and then here's where it gets completely stupid i have my personal bodyguard there too who is now choking ed's guy <laughs> so it's like the three stooges or like the, the keystone cops we're all pulling each other out and we all fall out the dressing room onto the floor and it's a full melee it's fucking it's literally and then i look up and there's my dad and my brother looking down at me like what the fuck you're being <laughs> and he's like, yeah, like, what are you doing so 
it was a complete, oh, it was just, it was a horrible, I was mortified. And so fast forward to the Monday, getting back into the studio with Ted Templeman. Okay, when I'm sitting there on the drums, and I and I, I feel like shit because I I just like I can't believe I was I was choking my fucking idol Edward Van Halen, <laughs> and then Ted Templeman hits the talkback button, and you know about the talkback button, it literally silences everything in the room. It's like God's talking to you, and right, he hits right, the right, right. and of course everyone can hear, and he goes, uh, Jimmy, uh, Edward is on the phone. He wants to talk to you. And no. I, I literally feel like I'm going to poop and throw up at the same time. I'm like, uh, okay. Okay. And then he says, everybody take five. So I go into the room, into, into the control booth. And he goes, Jimmy, and he goes, it doesn't sound good. He goes, go take it in my office. And I'm like, I'm not lying. I feel like I'm going to throw up. I, that's how intense of a, a feeling I have. So I go into Ted's office and I pick it up. And I go, hello. And he goes, Jimmy. And I go, and I go, dude. And I start to say, I'm so, and he goes, dude, stop. He goes, I got to tell you what happened. I go, dude, I go, I'm so sorry. I fucked up. And he goes, no, dude, I was trying to get away from Valerie because she's there and I'm sneaking around the room because I'm banging the girl from the other, the opening band and I'm trying to sneak out and you're blowing my cover because I don't want her to know where I'm at. And you're going, Ed, Ed. So she can hear that I've left the room. So he goes, by the time I got to the dressing room, you fucking, you had everybody following you. He goes, and I just lost a dude. I fucking lost. And I go, oh my God. And I go, I am so stupid. I'm so sorry. I'm dying. And, and he apologizes to me. He goes, I'm so sorry. Did I go, Ed, I love you. I love you. Love you. Love you. I'm so sorry too. And so that, that's one, I mean, literally one of my, my fucking memories of, again, like we're going to about to transfer in, into drug and alcohol again, because of drugs and alcohol, that was. Well, because of drugs and alcohol, Jimmy, you cock blocked Eddie Van Halen. Absolutely. Who's trying one to get million, laid? One million percent I did that. Oh my God, I love that story. Mm-hmm. That is so beautiful. Yeah. So Jimmy D. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it the drugs and alcohol probably took a, a, a small part. Um, right. well, in, in uh, everybody fighting and bodyguards and black eyes right. and broken and, arms. So, and, and you and I know that again, you know, and the reason, at least for me, I should say, you know, I, I used and abused, you know, for a, a while and for a long while. And, and the truth is if it was, if it wasn't good, at least a little bit, I would have stopped much sooner, but it was still good for a while. You know, uh, I was, uh, um, able to kind of, you know, rally and go, well, I'm going to take some time off and, and, and I'm not going to drink for while I'm gonna get healthy for a while and then and of course I always ended up back worse than ever before but um what was your what was your drug of choice well you know that's the thing with with me I mean I, I both of my I mean literally on both sides of, of my my parents family are complete that addicts and alcoholics um so uh, I was kind of a Russian roulette. It would have ended up either on, you know, hard stuff like heroin and crystal meth and cocaine or just alcohol altogether. But for me at the end, uh, it was crystal meth. That was the, the, the drug that really kind of put the period at the end of the sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was everything. It, it really yeah. was. It was I was always popping pills, you know, uh, smoking tons of weed, drinking like a fish. You know, it was just everything. I was doing everything. A good old garbage can. Yeah, so garbage can, that's right. How um, how old were you when you realized that you had a problem? 
You know, I'll tell you what's funny. That, that's amazing that you asked that question because, you know, a, after being in recovery for a little while when, in my first, you know, few years of recovery, when I started doing writing and I realized uh, I was an addict way before I ever used drugs. Hmm. Um and and what I mean by that is I had a, I would obsess I I would overdo I couldn't just masturbate one time I had to do it for five hours you know that's when I was you know eleven years old you know th- there there were things that I did I could tell that I like uh, people wouldn't do, normal people wouldn't do or I should say you know non users because I don't think anybody's normal um, but it, it was until when I was introduced to drugs and alcohol that there was pain and there was things that I could now hide and suppress or put a different mask on and be able to then function in society. Uh, you know, but, uh, but I would say after like real using and remember when you, you know this, when you're a rock star or a musician that has some fame and some money, you surround yourself with people who don't say no. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I had friend. I had a few friends that said no, and they stopped being my friends because I put them out of the loop. But I, and then I put in guys who said, "Oh yeah, sure, Jimmy. Yeah, oh yeah, you're okay. You didn't do too much last night." Or don't worry about that, bro. I'll take care of that. You know, I surrounded myself with people who just basically put up with my bullshit. They kiss and, your uh, ass, right? Kiss your ass, people. Absolutely. Right. You know, because they want the fame. They're they're riding off your coattails, of basically. Of course, of course. You know, because they knew I was paying their bills. I was taking care of car notes for them. I was making sure that when we went out to dinner and, and to, to clubs, they never fucking paid a dime. I mean, I did that for. You can ask my wife. I did that. My wife would. She was my best friend back there. My, my wife was actually a part of the management that management uh, that, that managed Bullet Boys, and she used to come to me and go, "You know, all these fucking guys are leeches. None of them like you. They're not, none of them are your friends. They act, they know they're gonna get fucking a free drink and, and free drugs like that." That's why they're here. Like, no, 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 you don't know them. They love me. You know, I had that shit going on. Um, but I, I definitely saw the cracks uh, from from the using probably when I was about 26, 27 years old. And I got, I ended up getting clean right before my 33rd birthday. So, um, you know, again, it, even knowing that I had the cracks, it took me still about five, uh, five or six years at least where I then it just like, you know, the house was on fire. You know, everything was fucking gone. It was just all completely out of control. So you've been sober a long time, long time. I, you know, this is um, the Tim. Uh, this is a big year for me. Uh, I'll be twenty years uh, in November, God willing. Wow, yeah. Muzzle Tov, as we say. Congrats! <laughs> that's that's Thanks. amazing. Was it one particular serious consequence? Like, what was it that happened that made you say, "Okay, I'm getting sober." I mean, there's well, so many questions I want to ask you about. How did right. you get sober? What did you do? A lot of my. Um, a lot of the listeners are like, they don't know how to get sober. They're listening right. and they're like, so if he could do it, I right. could do it, but I don't know how, you know, right. like, let's, let's educate, let's give solutions. One of the things that I remember hearing in the rooms were that, um, look, when, pe- when somebody's ready to make that change in their life, truly 100% ready to make that change in their lives, they will do absolutely uh, everything to, to start on that path. And, uh, and that's what I did. I I just, you know, I, I mean, I can't, and I'm sorry to do this to you, Jen, but the truth is the the moment, uh, uh, the, the last moment, the last absolute hour, the last 10 minutes, the last 10 seconds of that, of that experience, I, I, I can't really share. I've only shared it with a few people in my entire life, but what I can say about uh, what I can say to, to people who are struggling with uh, with addiction and alcoholism is that um, there's help. 
There truly is, a, there are people on this planet who will literally walk through hell and back with you to help you to, to stay clean and sober, whether it's for a minute, whether it's for the night, whether it's for whatever the, that time frame is. And, and uh, it, it's important that when you start in that journey, that because that's a thing, because I, I, I tried to get clean and sober a couple times prior to actually doing it, but I had reservations every time, you know, I, I had, I had the, I'm special. I was like, well, I was not as bad as that guy. So, you know, I, I had, you know, these limitations as to what things that I would do to get my life back in order and to keep my wife and to make my son happy and keep him, you know, uh, I, I would do almost everything except, well, I still want to pop pills and I still want to smoke weed. <laughs> and, you know, so it, uh, during those, those first few times, I, I, I never really gave wholeheartedly and did absolutely everything that people told me in the rooms because I went to AA, but I ended up in Narcotics Anonymous NA, but it doesn't matter because I, and, and I try to tell it to people that you guys, you know, when you're first hearing about, you know, these 12 step programs or you're hearing about anything for that matter, because Look, I don't tell anybody. Look, you got to go. The, the you got to you got to walk the path that I walk. That's that's bullshit. I don't believe that that's the way it works for everybody. I think that some people can find relief and find redirection in in church. I feel like some people can find it through therapy. I feel like you know. Uh, but for me personally, getting into a twelve step program and actually taking some of the advice uh, that these people were asking me, they were saying, "Jimmy, are you really in pain?" Yes, then you're ready to do something about it. And so it, it was just, it was basic information, you know, I, and, I, and it was things like changing your play places, meaning don't hang out at those places that you would hang out where you knew people were getting loaded, um, you know, uh, and it was like, okay, uh, don't do the things you used to do, you know, uh, you know, that because those things would lead you down that same path. So it was like kind of basic information at first. And then it wasn't until I literally I got a sponsor. And then that gentleman said to me, Okay, Jimmy, uh, now we're gonna we're gonna now we're gonna do the most uncomfortable thing ever. We're gonna look inside Jimmy. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna do a four step. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Okay, we're going to look at oh, first and then the fourth step, of course, as well, and then making the amends. But for me, it was starting to understand why I did what I did. And, and you know, because I always thought that it was you. You did this to me. You made me stressed out and I had to go use. Or another bill came in that month and that fucking bill I wasn't prepared for. And now I have to drink in order to fucking blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, that was, those are all just symptoms of the, of the illness that I had. And it was, you know, I, 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 cause I did the same thing that, uh, like my family did is they, were they used when they were happy. They used when they were sad. They used when they were bored. They, you know, it was all of that stuff that I did. And I never really understood, like, I didn't know how to process information. I didn't know how to how to deal with life on life's terms, you know. And uh, uh, anytime something got a little too hard for me, I ran. And, and that's something I learned uh, to do really well is how to run, how to hide, how to deflect, how to make it be your problem, not my problem. Um, you know, and it, it took a, a 
minute. And it, it's still even today because, you know, after you have some, even though you get clean and sober and you're there for a while, the problems you had when you first got clean and sober aren't the same problems you have, you know, after you've been there for a handful of years. You know, it's it's a different set of problems. And you've got to keep still doing the things you did in the beginning to help maintain what you have today. At least that's what I was taught and that's what I still do. But Honestly, it was those first that first six months where I just sat down and I shut the fuck up. I didn't know anything. I thought I knew how to do this. I didn't. And I listened to people and they said, Jimmy, keep coming back. It's okay. It's going to get better or it's going to get different at least. And I'm like, okay, I can accept different from what I had. For sure, because that was turmoil, that was hotels, that was all the fucking seediness of downtown Los Angeles, that was people who were dying, literally dying in front of me. These were people who were stealing and stabbing each other over fucking money. I mean, it was a complete now. And that's what's crazy, because, you know, people tend to think, well, that's what an addict is because they go through all that. But, you know, no, I've seen moms come into meetings who just have their life in turmoil because they can't function without pills anymore. And, and so it, it to me, it's always about, you know, if you belong in a meeting or you need help, you know it already. You, you know, some people wait for them to tell them, but you know, you've sat in the room, you looked in the mirror and you went, fuck, I can't believe I fucking did that shit. Oh my God. And, and at that moment, I believe is when you start getting that little tap on the shoulder. Like you have the opportunity now to start to fix what's happening in your life. And unfortunately you and I know, you know, you've, you, if you've done it for 10 years, I would say stopping doing it for 10 years is a start, but you still have to implement good into your life and learning how to process, you know, the things that what people call today triggers. I, I you know, I call it life on life's terms, you know, um, I think some people, it's just they have stress in their lives and they end up going, you know what? I had to drink because I was stressed out. Well, you know, again, that was a choice you made. You know, uh, you, you could have easily went to a meeting or went to a place and said, I don't want to do this. What can I do to not do this? And people will help you. So I, I'm, I'm an advocate for anybody who, if you need help, find the place that suits you best. For me, it was a 12-step program. It was AA at first and it was NA and it's been NA for about 19 years now. That's amazing. Wow. You just, uh, you really just touched me. You just, you just fired me up for sobriety. <laughs> you really did. I mean, in a nutshell, that's it. And I love how you talked about that. It's not one size fits all. Yeah. Um, I too went through the 12 steps and I, I go to meetings and sometimes I hate meetings and right. I say that sometimes that's I'm like, funny. you know, and when my disease is really talking, it's mm -hmm. when I'm like, I don't have to go to a meeting and then I don't go to a meeting and then I'm miserable. And right now I'm going to admit, like I'm in, I'm in a, I'm in like a, a, a slump where I'm telling myself I don't have to go to meetings and I'm a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. And I know damn well, there's, there's like, um, my son goes to this therapist and mm. I, I, gosh, I wish I could, I wish I could quote him. But there's something scientific about like he's he's kind of woo woo. He's really woo woo. Like he told my son that my son's an alien. Like he's like <laughs> he's out there. He's really out there. But there, there was some kind of scientific uh, fact about just the love that's in the meeting and everything that just lifts you. It, it just takes yeah. your compulsion away. If I yeah. if I'm feeling a, if I'm feeling a certain way, mm. I walk into a meeting. I walk out 
And I'm not feeling that's that, that way anymore. It's like when you go, when you, you same thing with working out, you know, I, in the morning, I don't want to work out. I feel like shit. I'm tired. I want to go to the gym. And then you leave and you feel great, you know? Yeah. And you, you're right. Because I'll tell you, that was one of the things that attracted me the most is, uh, and I'll tell you, man, I don't know about you, but in the last few years of my using, there was no laughter. There was nothing funny. There was fucking no one smiling, okay? And I remember being in a meeting. I probably had about 30 days. And I remember something happened in the meeting. Somebody said something and everyone laughed. And I remember looking around like, what the fuck are you all laughing at? I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die still from this disease. What do you find so funny? And, and I remember just feeling like, like I I was so separate from them. I was such, I was like, they didn't understand me or anything. And and that's when I first started hearing things like, well, Jimmy, just keep coming back. Just keep coming back. And then that was the first time that I, I, I laughed in years was in a meeting. When, uh, you know, I had said something, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, you know, I had three years clean and sober when this event happened, but um, I was in line at McDonald's. Okay. And I love McDonald's pancakes. I think that they're a true godsend. I believe that they're sent from the heavens. I love their pancakes. So in my neck of the woods, in this particular McDonald's, they have two entrances to McDonald's. Okay. Now you you can, you see who comes in the line. So you, you've been in line you go, Oh, this guy just came in. So, you know, you're after me, buddy. So mm-hmm. I'm in line. And then I happen to look, and like I said, I only have about four years of the time. I say only, but I had four years. So I put my head down for one second and the guy that was to the right of me, who saw, who I saw come in and saw me park there cuts in front of me. Uh-huh. And like I said, I'm from East LA, so I know how to fucking talk shit, you know. So I, and I have the, at the time, I have an old school Pathfinder that has the the way you roll the window down where you have to crank it down, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I crank the window down, and I start fucking talking the most fucking gangster shit. Motherfucker, (laughs) oh fuck. I start going off at the mouth like hardcore. And then this guy jumps out of his car and he's got to be 6'6", 280 pounds, a fucking monster, okay? And I go, oh, shit. And I start (laughs) to slowly roll my window up and I look behind me as to say, wow, who was that guy that was saying all that shit to this big guy? Because that guy's in trouble for me. (laughs) I'm looking behind me, you know? And then, and the guy's going, what's up, motherfucker? And and I'm looking back like, no, not me, dude. Somebody back there, dude. And then the guy gets back in his car and then so now I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, I you know, I was, was crazy. So I call my sponsor. My sponsor has a Southern draw and, uh, uh, and I go, and his name's Brent W. And I go, Brent, I go, fuck, dude. I go, I, I had an incident today. And I tell him the whole story. And then he starts to giggle. And I go, what? And he goes, Jimmy, do you get it? You almost got jacked over pancakes today. <laughs> <laughs> and we both laughed. Our ass <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, Brent. That was an addict. I'm still an addict. You know, it was the funniest thing because even though I took the drugs and the alcohol out of my system, I still caused some of the behavior of the years of my using was still there. It was over pancakes, though. That was the difference. Oh, my God. I love it. I know. I Listen, I would do the same thing if it was right? the last outfit at Nordstrom in my size. Right. I'm telling you, I would I would run some bitch over for sure if it was an extra small and my dress. Seriously, uh, if if. 
if we're not spiritually fit, you know, right. if, if, if we're not spiritually fit when we're working our program and if I'm meditating and doing the steps, I'd be like, all right. A woman, Christine B taught me this, you know, during that, during that interlude, she said, she goes, Jimmy, you didn't want, you did not watch your ABCs. And I go, Christine, I don't know what the ABCs are. And she goes, your attitude, your behavior and your conversation. And I was like, okay, I learned something new today. My ABCs, my attitude, my behavior, and my conversation were out of control. And now I got to remember that. So yeah, again, these are, I mean, I've learned more life lessons. I learned how to be a father in the program. I learned how to be a better husband in the program. I learned how to be a friend that when you call me and say, Jimmy, I need you to help me move. Uh, I'm moving out of my house on Sunday morning. I'm the guy that shows up now. Okay. I wasn't that guy. I would have called you Sunday morning going, dude, I, I hurt my back. I can't do it, man. I'm, I'm all fucked up. I'm sorry, bro. I'm so sorry. I was that guy most of my life. And the program has taught me how to actually suit up and show up. You know, it, it's, it's such a, like, I, and here's what's crazy, Jen. I didn't show up for that. I did not show up to learn how to be a better human being. I showed up because the drugs and the shit that I was putting in my body were going to kill me and I knew it was around the corner. That's why I went to make the voices in my head stop saying to do the shit that it was telling me to do. That's why I went. I did not intend on finding a God of my understanding. I did not intend on finding uh, how to be uh, a good son to my mother, a good brother to my brother. I didn't under, that was all of the gifts that I got by just showing up and doing a little bit at a time and trying to improve on my existence. That was it. And little by little, these other things, people were coming back into my life that I burned the bridges before. And I was like, I can't believe this person's back in my life. And they're telling me they love me. And uh, it was just like, oh my God. I, th that's what I hear in the program that they said, Jimmy, there are things called the gifts and they're not mm -hmm. presents. Like you get a, like, a, like, you know, a new radio in your car, there are gifts and you never see them coming. And it's the truth. And so for me, that's a, again, a part of why I keep coming back and I still go to meetings and I still share at meetings and I still lead meetings. I go with my sponsor to uh, H and I panels, hospitals and institutions. We go, you know, talk to inmates and we, I, I do that shit because you know what? I was on my way to those places. Okay. There was no, there was no other alternatives for me. I was going to die or go to jail for the rest of my fucking life because of the shit I was doing. So I don't care how much time I got. I don't care. Like you said, there were times like on Thanksgiving every year. <sighs> Give me a second. <sighs> every year on Thanksgiving, I leave my family to go to meetings. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. I never want somebody to walk into a meeting on Thanksgiving and not see people there. I make sure that they know that there's somebody that cares for them and they're right here. I'm right here, brother. I got you. I'll fucking sit here with you all night long, okay? And I've done that every year of my recovery because I saw my sponsor do it and I saw other men in the program do it. I thought, okay, that's me. I got to do that. Because that that I know for a fact is that's what I'm supposed to do in my life now, okay? Because I've been overpaid. That's a thing, Jen. I was a fucking rock star in the 80s. I was fucking overpaid then, and I'm overpaid now. And I know that the balance in my life only comes from being able to give back and be there and be a of service to somebody else. And so now I'm able to, like when you called and you said you want to come do this, I'm like, 
uh, fuck, I'll do it right now because oh this God. is this is it. This is the deal. This is the dance that I want to be a part of for the rest of my life. And I know the only way to do it is if I put money into this because that's what I'm doing right now. I'm investing into my future by doing what I'm doing right now with you and still going to meetings because as soon as I stop doing this, you and I both know all the bands go away. All the gear goes away. All the experience of love and life that I have, they all go away. The second I go back to picking up and using and drinking and doing that shit, everyone runs from me. And I know at 53 years old, I don't have another recovery in me. I will die out there. I know this. So it, that's why I do what I do. And I keep going to meetings and I stay uh, um, in, in the center of the circle because that, that's where uh, that's where all the people that I know who are able to, to stay clean for as long as they have is they stay in the center of the circle. So that's what I continue to do. Jimmy, you're blowing my mind right now. Really I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I, that, that happens from time to time and I apologize, but that, I mean, I don't apologize for it. I just, I'm, I, you know, I'm, it just happens. You're, you're totally like, you're totally moving me. You're firing me up for <laughs> sobriety. Um, just th- thinking about where we've come, like, I was just like, Jimmy, Deanna, I like thinking about how I used to watch your videos and <laughs> who you were and how far you've come and how you've grown and, and you, you are doing the deal. You're walking the walk. You're not, I mean, this is not a guy that's full of shit. Like you have a million other things that you could be doing right now than talking to my dumb ass, really seriously, <laughs> you know, and it's true for everyone that's listening. I mean, I, Jimmy did not know me from shit. Okay. Mm -hmm. And literally he didn't know me from Adam and I called him two days ago and he's here doing this to help (laughs) other people. And so, I mean, you're rocking the deal and this is why you have the time you have. And this is uh, 20 years is, is the, I've seen so many people fall at 20. Yeah. Oh yeah. The terrible twenties because they forget Uh and they're, they're not doing what you're doing. And I'll tell you, there's a saying, if you remember the saying, because I remember hearing this when I had like eight or nine years, and they said, it's called too many years, not enough days. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. 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 Mm, yeah. Mm. So that's something for people that are listening that have long-term sobriety. I have a very, very dear friend I know right now that's definitely listening, and she has 25 years and I love her and she listens to podcasts, but she never goes to meetings anymore and it scares the shit out of me. And, you know, I'm not saying that you have to go to meetings because, you know, a big part of how I got sober was through meditation. It was, um, I, I'm a little woo woo myself. I love my crystals. I love my Reiki. Um, there there's, you know, it's not a one, one size fits all, but right. you have to do something and something that has to be done no matter what I believe, Jimmy, yeah. is helping others. Yeah, absolutely. Being of service is, is to me, is the center stone of, of everything that I do. Like I said, you know, I didn't plan on being a person that, that is accountable or is reliable. You know, that was never my deal ever. I mean, if I, whatever jobs I can get out of, that was, that was what was up. But being able to now be of service to another human being is really, um, and, and you know, and the thing too, Jen, that I that I learned is doing the right thing for the right reasons. Because I could do the right thing, like I could help a a beautiful woman out who's got a flat tire. What am I doing it for? To, you know, is it to look at her, or is it you know uh, uh, some alternate reason, or am I helping somebody because I know it's the right thing to do? So these are things that again that I've learned over the course of of the years. It, you know, is first of all. I am a fear-based creature, okay? I do the most work when I am 
when I got fear rampant in my body is when I run into meetings, it's when I pick up the phone, I'm calling people up and, and you know, I'm ringing the, 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 the bell, you know, oh my God, oh my God. But it, there, there came a time when I realized that, you know, the, with the thing that we know of is, is prelapse, you know, relapse. Prelapse mm, yeah. is like you just said, because I have been in that, that funk too for a while. There was a while there, and, and I think, I don't, I don't know if you heard this, but during the pandemic, more people relapsed than possibly in the last 20 years, in the last year, uh, there were the numbers were, were, were fucking off the charts. But I, I do know you're right. I can see when my behavior starts to take a downward spiral and I start to become uh, uh, ungrateful for the things that I have and I start to have a bad attitude, I start to have um, – you know, I, I just I'm walking around glum or sad or depressed because I have depression, too, and I have anxiety and all that fucking lovely stuff that we're all blessed with. And, um, you know, and again, meetings for me help me to keep all that stuff in check. They help me to kind of stay uh, centered to a certain degree where I know I, I have faults. I know that I'm, I'm subject to having these episodes and, and now they're not the end of the world. Now they are a part of, of my life and I'm able to recognize them and I'm able to then go, okay, I'm in the funk. I'm ugly. It's not good right now. And I'm going to let my wife know and I'm going to let my sponsor know and I'm going to let my best friends know I'm in the funk. I don't like who I am. I don't like who you are. And I'm letting you know this right now so that you can keep an eye on me. And it was simple stuff like that. Then I had my friends text me in the morning, Jimmy, I love you. You're my brother and I'm here for you. Simple things like that. Like, and you know what? It makes the world of a difference. Like you said, like it, like the energy in the meetings, same thing, you know, just having the connection with another human being that knows what you're going through. And that's, again, that's what I loved about the meetings is, is I really was the first time that I ever felt like, oh my God, I get these people and these people get me, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I was a liar, I was a cheater, I, I was a con artist, and fucking a lot of the, what I experienced, you know, what I learned how to survive, because those are survival skills. Th those weren't actual, you know, a human, what a human does. I, these are survival skills. Yeah, we're not we're not born like that. We nope. we learn to we learn Absolutely. to do that because we have to. Yeah. Absolutely, we we have to learn those in order to keep doing that shit that we're doing. So when I got into rooms, and I started and I started doing my trip. People were like, Jimmy, who do you think you're talking to, bro? I did that shit back in the 70s and the 80s, bro. You're here in 2000. We we got we got you numbered, okay? Sit down and shut mm -hmm. up, and we're going to help you find a, the Jimmy that you like to be around just for a while. So we're going to love you until you can love yourself, okay? And I remember, like you said, like that stuff was a lot of woo-woo for me, too. I was like, what? You're going to love me until I love until I love myself? What the fuck is that about? You know, but after a while of just kind of sitting down and just saying, you know what, I actually don't know what I'm doing. And then these people kind of helped me to, to, to move down the road a little better into some uh, out of that fear, out of that anger and that, and that, that, uh, that just that devastating shame, the devastating shame is what kept me loaded for a long time because I did so many, so many ugly fucking things. I'm like, I don't want to think about them. So I kept using, you know, it was that stuff that I kind of was able to, like you said, on the fourth step, you know, in, in the step work in general, you know, remembering that, that that wasn't me. That was a sick Jimmy. That's not Jimmy today. And he's going to have to keep himself in check so that I never return to that Jimmy again. And uh, but again, I just truly blessed to be able to share even this with you today to me that that is a part of what we uh, I love to call the blessings of this program. Oh, my God. So beautiful. And I I always say that, first of all, the first time I went into a meeting and heard somebody say, and I am 
so grateful to be an alcoholic. I didn't get it. For, I walked into my first AA meeting when I was 17. So I didn't, I didn't stay sober, but Right. It's like, she's grateful to be an alcoholic. What the, what is that? I, I don't that. get it. Yeah, I don't get that. But now I say, you yeah. know, if I was not afflicted with alcoholism and drug mm-hmm. addiction, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think I would just, I, I don't think I would have any depth at all. I don't think I would have any spirituality. I think that I would just be the most fluff chick, <laughs> shallow human being. I think mm-hmm. that, thank God- I had um, alcoholism and drug addiction because it's what it's what made it's what gave me character. It's what made me, you know, it's what well, gave one me of the other that I've got to experience, which is really, again, a blessing that I did not see coming is that because I put it out there. I, I have no shame in telling people I, I'm an uh, addict in recovery, alcoholic in recovery, whatever the term you want to use. It's fine by me. Um and uh, I put it out there and every now and again, I'll get a phone call from somebody who will say, hey, man, uh, I'm in a bad way and I don't know what to do with my life and I don't know where I'm going and, I, and, and I'm complete lost. And I'll say, here are some things that have helped for me. Here are some telephone numbers of some people that, that can help you get to meetings and see if that if that's something that can help you. And and then the one that, that's even been so by far like just bewildering is when my friends, kids, when they call me about their children and say, you know, my son's, you know, really, he's getting into it, man. He's doing it really ugly. And and then being there for that family and being there for that young person who's going through this shit already. Um, you, you know, I didn't realize that that, that I was going to be put to work in that sense. Um, I just thought, you know, I got the disease of addiction and alcoholism and I'm going to have to figure out how to, you know, work this thing in my life. And I didn't realize that I was going to be helping other human beings, you know, in that particular way. And and when I leave somebody's family, I pray for them, you know, because I know that it's going to be a roller coaster no matter how you slice it. But uh, I, I feel good that I know that I'm there for them, that I, I can, you know, I don't have answers. I can't save anybody. But I mean, I, I have information. You know, I can tell them, okay, so this is what normally, or this is what doesn't happen. This is what can happen. This is where you can go for this information. If I don't have the information, I'll send you somebody who can get you the right information. Because that's what it is. Janet's information. At the end of the day, you know, when you're traveling down and you're going through all this shit, you're trying to figure out, like, how do I get out of this? That's information. Who do I go to for this information? And uh, so I've been able to to, uh, supply some of that information for people. And again, that's a blessing. That is yeah. uh, that's something that I'm very I'm very grateful that I can help anybody just kind of get a little more information. That's it. And it's up to them to execute it. Right. Because there was many times that I was given oh, yeah. the information and right. not ready. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> not yep. ready to execute it. And mm-hmm. we can't take that when we try, when I try and help someone, I can't take it personal. Um, no. If if it doesn't work, you know. Right. Um, because the percentage is so low, but yeah, we, we both are, we, we both are miracles. And when we were talking before, it was like, we were talking about how we run into people and it's like people from our past, it's like, Oh my God, I'm so grateful to see this person and they're in recovery. Yeah. And it's like, well, if they're not in recovery, the way they used to party, (laughs) they have to be in recovery. Otherwise they'd be dead, you know? For sure. Absolutely. Oh, I've been to so many friggin' funerals, man. So, oh, uh, you know, look, I was in a band. I was in two bands, and and, and this, this was really scary for me because um, I was in a band playing for Janie Lane before he died. Yeah, I was going to talk about that because I know you you're going to be um, touring with Warrant, right? 
Well, we have dates coming up for sure with them, and uh, yeah, and and, uh, and I and I still know the guys. We, we still talk when we see each other, you know. Um, but it was really, it was so heartbreaking. Like you said, you know, he would call me from time to time. Hey, Jimmy, uh, I'm really thinking about going to meetings, bro. I say, hey, I'll come to your house. I'll pick you up. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, he changed his mind down the, down, you know, before I, I went, I went to pick him up, but we had rehearsals and, you know, we would just see him and it was just so sad to go to, I knew it. I, in my head, I'm like, I, I feel like we're going to get a call one day. And it was probably from after the last show we played together. Uh, I think I, I want to say it was like six months, maybe then we got the phone call that he had passed. And then I was in a band with Mike Starr from Allison Chains and I was actually Mike Starr's sponsor. And, mm. uh, yeah. And, and, you know, and he was the same way he would disappear. And then, then he called me, Hey Jimmy, man, I'm, I'm fucked up, bro. I'm like, Mike, where are you? I'm going to come get you, you know? And I would, and, um, you know, he really wasn't ready to hear the information. He really wasn't at that place that I was at. And other people have been at where it's like, okay, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to do this. If it kills me, I'm going to get clean and sober. But, um, you know, it was, it was really sad on both the guys because you could just see it in their eyes. You could see it in, in their demeanor that it was, it was coming. It was coming. So when, you know, like I said, I got the call about Janie, that was tough. But when I got the call about Mike, cause we were friends cause Allison chains, people don't know this. Allison chains was bullet boys opening band in 1989. They were the opening band in, uh, in Seattle for us. We did five shows in Seattle or something to that effect. And they were the local band, local support band. And they followed us around like little kids, like, Oh my God, I love bullet boys. And they were fucking huge fans. So I met, I knew the guy since then. I saw Allison chains in about 89, a uh, small club called the Akron Agora. Yeah. And they were opening acts for something like that. Yeah. So I, yeah. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I had known Mike for a very long time and we were close and he was, you know, we were helping him. I mean, my wife was helping him get dental point appointments, get his life together. I was picking up and taking him to the hospital for, for checkups and stuff. I mean, we were, we were becoming really close again. And then of course, to get the phone call that he's gone, you know, from his sister was just really tough. And, and again, you know, um, I just wish that those guys had taken, you know, steps to, to, to get into recovery. And, uh, you know, but again, they're, they become that uh, statistic. Like you said, that there's a very high statistic of people who, who pass away from the disease of alcoholism and drugs, you know? And, you know, it's so weird. And we, I don't want to take up, like, I'll, I'll talk to you all night and I don't want to, I don't want to take up all your whole night, but okay. So I have two, two questions. First of all, it's so weird because like you said about Janie, how like you just had a feeling that you were going to get that call. I mean, I, same exact thing with, with, with a couple of my friends too. It's like, I just, I predicted, I just predicted, I just waited for the call. And I've had so many of my friends say that they just stopped talking to me. Because they just, they're like, Jen, we just couldn't deal with waiting to get the call that you were going to die, you know? So um, just recently, a friend of mine was like, you know, Jen, I'm just, I just can't even tell you how how grateful I am to have you. She's like, I I stopped talking to you for years because I couldn't deal with having to go to your funeral. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just weird. I just see you have that intuition and then when it happens and it's like, God, it's it's just heartbreaking. But so when you help people, this, this is for... Um, people that have, you know, a lot of sobriety and that are, you know, reaching out and helping newcomers and stuff. This is somewhere where I get stuck a lot. Um, sometimes I don't know, like if someone's calling me and they're asking for help and they're, they're sort of on the fence and if they're using, cause you said like, if 
they would call and be like, I'll come pick you up or whatever. If they're using, mm. sometimes I don't know if I should be like, listen, call me when you're sober and I'll come take right. you to a meeting. Right. Or if I should engage when they're still using, like, how, how do you feel about that? What do you, where do you stand? What do you do? Again, for me, I, I think it's a case by case basis, you know, in, in the case with Mike Starr, um, you know, uh, I, I knew I'd go get him. He'd get in my truck and I'd take him to his, back to his place and he'd, he would basically fucking sleep for three or four days. <clears throat> That's different. <clears throat> if it's a newcomer and somebody who, <clears throat> excuse me, allergies, uh, if it's, it's a newcomer and you're going into an environment you have no idea about, I mean, that's, that's to me a different, uh, that's different altogether. You know, I'm not putting myself in, in harm's way, in danger. Um, you know, I, I think that, again, it's a case-by-case basis. Uh, I, I, you know, we I've heard it. You know, I'm sure you've heard it. You know, we, we carry the the message. We don't carry the alcoholic. The we person, carry the message. Yeah. We don't carry the addict. You know, and, and it's not our it's not our job to go and actually physically remove somebody from, you know, the actual using process. And, of course, and then we tell them, you know, look, call me before you use don't call me before you after you've already started drinking. Don't call me then. I don't want to hear it then. Okay, yeah. you you're having trouble. We know there there is a window before you actually take a drink, a snort, a pill, a smoke, anything. We know there's there's a window in that one. That's why it's so important in, in our program. We teach newcomers to call on a regular basis, so it becomes second nature. So that when you actually have to call. It's not this weird, like, oh, fuck, I got to call this guy. I never talked to him. You know, we got into the habit of talking every day at 730 after dinner. It's it's just a check-in. What's up? How was your day? Good? You good? I'm good. Talk to you tomorrow. That's all it is. So that you don't have that two-ton phone when you, you know, as, as you don't talk to somebody for six months. And then you go, fuck, I haven't talked to that guy. I don't know, man. And then before you know it, it it's too late. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. for me. It, 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 it's to me, a, yeah. Yeah, it's case by case, but also I would never put myself or ask anybody to go into uh, into the lion's den where you know people are smoking crack or, or doing some shit. You're like, no, 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 I, I'm not doing that. And so um, it's a case by case for me personally. Cool. Yeah. And talk to your sponsor about it too. It's 12-step work, so absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, man. Shit. You blew me away. I got to yeah. tell you. Well, I'm just like, yeah, wow. Yeah. You help so many people and- what a story. I just, I, I want to give you the hugest hug right now. I do. We will. We will. When I get out to your neck of the woods, I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to come out and see the Bullet Boys play and we're going to, we're going to hang out. We're going to have dinner. We're going to do the whole thing. Absolutely. I'm going to take you to some great meetings. I was out in, um, two years ago, I spent the whole summer. I was in Malibu. It was so boring, but I went to, um, they, they had a big, huge Saturday night meeting with some great speakers. Oh, nice. And, they, they have some great meetings out in California. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. When we were on, when uh, I was touring with George Lynch under, uh, with the Lynch mob uh, for, for years and years and years, and me and the bass player, who's also, he's sober, he's got a grip of years too, uh, we would find meetings. We'd find meetings and we'd get a cab, you know, before Uber and we would go to meetings and, and we would get there early, get coffee, go around shaking hands and talking to people. And, and, you know, that was a part of the blessing that, again, I got to share my my story and got to hear other people's story. Because, you know, once you've been to so many meetings, you've heard everybody's story. Everybody in that meeting, yeah. you know, they're seeing you. Like, oh, yeah, I know. yeah, it's great. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. 
LA and you go to New Jersey and you're in a meeting in New Jersey, fuck to me, that was like, you know, that was a blessing. I mean, I've done meetings in London, uh, and, and like I said, in Jersey and, and, and throughout the States, you know, uh, Denver, you know, just down the line, uh, Arizona. And it's just, that's been such a cool experience to have that. Yeah, that's so cool. I'm going to ask you the dumbest question about Lynch Mob. Please do. Were you were you on the Wicked Sensation album? No, that's actually uh, Mick Brown from Dawkins. He's on that record, which is oh, oh, really? Okay, I got that. I love George Lynch. What a freaking guitar player, man! I love him. I just played with him uh, uh, two weeks ago at uh, at a festival out in uh, in Philadelphia. There's video of it. I'll, I'll send you some links. Oh, good, please. I'd, oh, my God. He's freaking so amazing. I was oh. a big Dawkins fan. Love oh, yeah. George Lynch. He, he lights me up. I love he's George a, Lynch. He's a freaking yeah. – it's Eddie Van Halen. You got Randy Rhodes. You got George Lynch. To me, that's like the that, – that's the holy trinity of rock guitar from the 80s. And you got to play with us. So you got to play with one of your idols, which is amazing. George Lynch. Absolutely. And, and, and you got to piss that. off one. <laughs> and you got Alan. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah. And I know that I know you're also a big uh, John Bonham fan, too. And, you know, what I have in common with John Bonham, we have a lot in common. But um, John, John Bonham, he died choking on his puke. And I almost died choking on my puke. Thank God the uh, guy, the producer that's right here brought me back to life with CPR. But wow. I always say like, I'm such a rock star. I choked on my puke and almost died. Wow. When I OD. Wow. So yeah, it's awesome. So me and John Bonham, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're wild. <laughs> I'm so disgusting. I am. No, okay. Not. So <laughs> you, you're, you're going to be out on tour. We want to hear all about your tour. Yeah. So uh, 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 what I'm going to do is I'm going to post because we're just remember, we're just finally coming out of this whole <clears throat> craziness. So we are finally getting our tour dates in and we're getting like I got two Texas dates at the end of the month, uh, Denver. And then we got some L.A. shows and I, and there's a whole bunch of festivals in the Midwest. So I'll definitely I'll, I'll get you those. So you have them. I don't have them on, on hand. All right. So I'll put them. Yeah, I'll, I'll put them on my because um, we're going to have so many fans now. You're going to have like a million fans because I have such a huge following on this podcast. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm making fun of myself, babe. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I can't. I mean, I just cannot extend my gratitude enough for you coming on here and sharing your experience, strength and hope and all of your strength and wisdom with sobriety. I didn't realize like, honestly, I thought I, I just didn't. I didn't realize that you were such a, you know, just had so much strength, you know, that you were such a strong, sober man, really. And well, I'm just. And again, I, I'm only because of that, because of the people in, in the program for me personally. I mean, I, I literally I I'm telling you, honestly, I could never in a million years thank the people in the program enough for what they have taught me and what they continue to teach me and and walk with me, you know, through through this uh, through life. Well, you're definitely a role model to many. Um, this is Sober Exposure. You've been listening to Jimmy D. Yeah, Bullet thank Boys, you. Jennifer Wilde. Thank you so much, sweetheart. Thank you, Jen. I love you, love you, love you. Mwah. Love Mwah. you more. See you next week. Need more? Of course you do. The show's all about needing more. Go to my website at SoberExposure.show or get stuck on my Instagram at SoberExposure underscore podcast.